No my hi my welcome everyone to this session here at the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. I'm Lynn Freeman from RNZ National's Art Show Standing Room Only. Hannah Parry, who writes fantasy novels where she reimagines historical characters and events, and her latest book, A Declaration of the Rights of Magicians, we get an entirely new perspective on William Pitt, William Wilberforce, Robespierre and the French Revolution, also on the nature of slavery and of magic itself. It's intriguing and it's disconcerting, and it looks at how the oppressed will rise up against their oppressors, in this case, the magical minority. I thought we'd talk about fantasy writing because it's such a, a broad church, and it's just like jazz and folk music and all these things. You know, they used to be quite tight genre definitions, and now they're so broad. So in terms of your writing on the shelf of fantasy, where would it be? It's really teasing the edges of the, that genre, I think, yeah. I mean, I say, I obviously, I'm, I'm very lucky that I, I know a lot of people online and in life who write fantasy, and a lot of them are, yeah, say, it goes sort of straight from the, the epic fantasy. I know a lot of people who write sort of fantasy romance. Um, you know, I know people who write historical fantasy. Obviously, I know people who write science fiction. Um, yeah, with, with mine, I think I really wanted to write something that really pushed into the historical novel. And I think the... The kind of historical novels I like to read, which was at the time I was reading, obviously things like Hilary Mantel, and um, you know, especially if you've read *A Place of Greater Safety*, which is a French Revolution book, you know, I really loved that. And you know, people like Jude Morgan, you know, people who were really writing historical fiction that was really kind of semi-biographical <laughs> science fiction, which is kind of really where I really wanted to push this one into, so that it kind of felt like it might be a, a historical novel that was written in the world with magic in it. And my first novel, it was fantasy, but the fantasy was all kind of um, based in reading and literary analysis and so forth, and it was set in the real world. So again, it was, it was trying to kind of bridge that gap between real, you know, tr you know straight fantasy and you know, a really genre fantasy, and um, that's becoming more and more of a thing, I think, that fantasy is really crossing over into different genres. Yeah, I think the whole yeah. genre thing is going it's to really disappear much. eventually. Yeah. <laughs> it's all yeah. fusion. It yeah. is, yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, so did you have also an interest in, in history? Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Really started when I was at university and I was studying books, um, you know, for for you know for work in a sense um and so normally i'd be you know doing doing work and reading for escapism and so because i was reading the books i loved for you know for for a purpose i kind of started reading history books you know as a kind of escapism and so i started i got really into the british abolition movement you know i got really into the french revolution um and all that associated age of enlightenment and so i think it just kind of kept bubbling away and i it could have sort of funneled into a historical novel. It, it didn't. And I mean, for a, a lot of reasons, and I think partly because I sort of, among other things, I got sort of interested in the way different history books tell different stories differently. And I guess um, I mentioned Hilary Mantel, and if it's like, you know, stuff like her Cromwell trilogy, where they're specifically, they're specifically telling a story of a specific person, but obviously every time you do that, you make all these choices about the kind of story you're telling and you're mythologizing that person in a way, you know? And so that's why I, I sort of started thinking, well, what if 
there's a way of addressing that, like really addressing the fact that when you're writing a historical novel, you're, you're, you're making things up and you're, you know, you're mythologizing things and you're making choices about the kind of myth that you're telling. And that was when I sort of started thinking, what if you sort of started putting magic into it and it started branching out into something that was a little bit more mythic and a little bit less purporting to be fact and more, you know, getting into fantastical. Did you have also a fascination with magic? I mean, we do, don't we? Of it's something course, we can't, yeah, yeah. We can't control. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Definitely. Uh, and I was just thinking, you know, even watching things on Netflix with magic now, and it's still so, and I thought, I, maybe I, this is very high def, and I could look very closely, and I could put it on slow-mo, and maybe I could work out how it's done. But sometimes you just, you just want to believe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, magic can do a whole lot of things, but yeah, definitely. Part of it is, is the wonder of it that, like, if you're, yeah, and if you're talking about history, I mean, the, at its most basic, it's finding a way to kind of literalise that, that wonder and that fascination that you can have when you're reading about historical things, definitely. And here, I mean, f magic is to be feared, you know, for, for the, it's, it's not understood, yeah. you can't control it, these people mm. are potentially powerful. So in this world, magic is a gift for some, but a, th a threat to those who don't have it, which is fascinating. Yeah, definitely, and it becomes a way of thinking about power and a way of thinking about freedom in a way that it's something that can be, you know, can be very dangerous in the wrong hands and especially when you, um, you know, who decides what the wrong hands are, <laughs> you know? So yeah, if it's like if you're, if you're doing a, a popular uprising for the right to practice magic, it's really um, happening alongside the rights to do a whole lot of other things. And yeah, definitely, you kind of want it to be something big and, and thrilling and fascinating and yet a bit dangerous and unknowable as well. Because I was thinking about things like um, uh, the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter, which again, the it's, it's, a, it's a movement and it's powerful and for, for many people it's like, oh, thank God, this is happening. But for, for other people who, who disagree, they can find that very, including politicians, they can find that very threatening. I mean, did you have these things in a way going through your head when you were re-examining the nature of magic in this world? This came out right when that movement where Black Lives Matter was happening, which on the one hand, just, it just felt a little too on the nose. It was like, oh God, you know, don't, don't touch that book if it's, you know, gonna not, um, yeah, if it's not something you're in the headspace for at the moment, I understand completely. It's a world where the people who are, you know, the people want to allow magic to those um, who are in power, but they're very afraid of it being in the hands of the, the powerless for exactly the same reason where the powerful, the politicians, the government are afraid of anything <laughs> like that being in the, you know, so that's what's happened throughout history with access to education, you know, access to rights, access to amenities and so forth because, yeah, exactly, it's, it's things that are, make life easier and they don't, you know, and, yeah, can be, you know, very scary to, um, <laughs> that, to, to those who are in power and want to hold all of that to have people take possession of it, you know, and rise up. But obviously that's, yeah, that's how history gets made. I thought we'd look at your core characters. Um, and William Pitch, of course, there's the historical record of him as a politician. Yeah. When you were doing your research, before we, we look at the, the pit of your novel, what characteristics did you, did you think, and what did you think of the historical man? Oh, I mean, he's very interesting. I, I came at him because I came at him from well before first. Um, so he was the first one. And so, um, 
you know, because I, I was reading, as I say, I was reading about the British abolition movement and um, he was obviously, Wilberforce was one of the central ones. And so I, I locked on to Pitt because of his friendship with Wilberforce, um, partly because I think with all the, I should say, with, with all the characters in this book, what I kind of locked onto with, with all of them was can you get a central friendship and how that's going to work and how that's going to change because that was kind of the, the heart of all three plot lines for me. But, um, and yeah, yeah, with Pitt, uh, what I found interesting about him and his, French, and, and his friendship with Wilberforce was that kind of movement he took that when he was younger and he was looking to be prime minister, he was really quite idealistic and, you know, his, um, his, his ideals gelled with, with Wilberforce's quite a lot. As history went on and he got, the, you know, the wars began, things started happening and so obviously he started getting sort of steadily more conservative in some ways and the compromises you have to make when you take power intending to do certain things and then obviously the more you the more you come up against you know well um okay i can't do that yet but i'll do it later or i have to do this particular thing so that i can stay in power so that i can do these good things later you know Sounds so we're familiar in the middle of a war, yeah, yeah we're in the middle of a war now so we'll just do it for now and then we'll you know we'll do it after the war and yes exactly and the way that 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 character shift happens and the way that that friendship um, interacts as a result was something that I was yeah kind of really interested in. I mean it's a, it is a fabulous friendship the two of them have it's tested in, in ways different to what happened historically. In a sense. I mean yeah definitely yeah no there's yeah there's there's no vampirism in the real world. No, that's as right. far as I know. Shadows don't try and come and you know kill you in the middle as far of the night. As I know, so yeah. their friendship <laughs> is tested in, in, in that way. Um, yeah. but but it is I mean the politics of the time really was fasc fascinating wasn't oh, it? it? Was, I mean there was yeah. so much change going on and of course what was happening in France was incredibly threatening to what was happening in, in yeah. England. It was a tumultuous time. I mean the age of enlightenment. I mean was it? Do you think the age of enlightenment? It was. I mean, abs uh, what, what fascinates me about that time is that it's such a, it's such a time of where people were really were kind of um, fighting <laughs> in the streets, you know, over ideas and over philosophy and over, you know, when they were having parliamentary battles, they really were these kind of rapier, you know, <laughs> daggers at dawn with, with words and so forth. Um, both in, in Britain and in France and all that, they were all trained in rhetoric and in making an argument and getting their point across, you know. So um, as a result, it became a real time of, it became a time of revolution, you know, which I think is, yeah, I think, I think that movement from, that's the kind of thing you, you talk about as a writer, you want to believe that words have power and, and stories have power and ideas have power. And this is a, this was really a time period where you could really see that movement from, you know, people publishing <laughs> so-called seditious um, material, people having these kind of radical ideas and that really turning into action, which, yeah, exactly. I think that's such, a, such an interesting time period. Wilberforce, I think diminutive is a, is a description of him in the, in the novel, but what did you make of him? I admire him a lot, and I mean, with the disclaimer that obviously he isn't perfect. He's um, grew up in a particular system, and so he's blind to certain things. And I wanted to have a lot of different viewpoints in <laughs> in that story, is to make sure that no particular character is is being held up as the perfect one. But um, I think he almost, you know, he he probably comes closest to being the moral compass in the book 
if you look at it tempered with, with other things. He was a, a lot ahead of his time. Blind spots aside, you know, obviously he was a, he was a person that dedicated his life to certain things that are still alive, you know, you know, and are still ideals that we hold nowadays. There are obviously people in that book who are are rebelling on behalf of themselves and their family and their friends. And I think he's a fascinating example of somebody who fought very hard and upended his whole life and devoted his whole life to it was, you know, a twenty year battle to abolish uh, the slave trade and then another um twenty or so years before slavery itself and then obviously <laughs> Then you had to start, dig, he died after that, but then you dig on, on apprenticeships and, you know, so forth. But, um, but yeah, so somebody who did devote his life to the welfare of people who were mostly half a world away that he never actually saw, which I think, you know, is something that, to, you know, that's something that's worth celebrating. And he needed now. Pitt, though, didn't he? Because he did find the whole political side of things, as, as most people would, quite bewildering. And the British system is complex, the political system is complex, so Pitt was very, uh, it was crucial to him, really. Uh, yes, he was. I mean, I mean, apart from anything else, yeah, it's, it's very good to have the Prime Minister on your side if you're trying to <laughs> bring about social change, I imagine, although, of course, um, yeah, at the time, yeah, with the, the slavery issue was a, uh, you know, it, it was a mora personal morality issue, so they couldn't actually get the party involvement, you know, on either side, sadly. And unfortunately, yeah, say, Pitt was dealing with a very conservative government um, of which he was a part of, so therefore, you know, it was hard, you know, that, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of issues involved why, you know, they couldn't have overturned it earlier. The, the two of them, obviously, I think Pitt kind of is the, the absolute, you know, the polit yeah, he, was, he was absolutely born and bred in politics, you know. Like, he was, he was raised to be prime minister from birth, more or less. His father kind of um, was obviously a prime minister as well, and he really kind of marked him. He wasn't the eldest son, but he was the one that inherited the, the family name and got sort of marked for greatness from, the, from birth kind of thing, which is partly what you kind of, I th what I found interesting is how do you kind of, grapple with the idea that you're meant, you know, <laughs> what happens when you're marked for greatness from birth and you've got to live up to that. But, um, yeah, he, he was the one on the political side and Wilberforce was sort of on the activism side, um, but obviously also the, the one who was representing a lot of the, the other real activists in Parliament. So, yeah, it was, a, was a, an interesting partnership, yeah. Until I started reading Declaration, I didn't realise how little I knew really about Robespierre other than his, his name. I mean, I've loved history and I've studied it, but clearly the French Revolution just passed me by at school. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Queen's High School. Everything else was great. Um, but, and this is a story of revolution, mm. ultimately it is. But, and he is another really complex character, Rob. I mean, your heart kind of bleeds for, for him in, in some ways, not that he's a perfect person. But, yeah, I mean, the, again, the Robespierre, how do, yeah. how do you see him? Again, it's that same progression on a much more dramatic scale that I was interested in with Pitt, with, with Robespierre. I mean, the thing with, with him was that he was such an idealist at heart, and the, the ideals that, you know, the, the ideals of the French Revolution are, are, for the most part, you know, wonderful ideals, you know, they are. And so you do, it is that, I sort of, you sort of start out with that question where, how do you get from rising up and storming the Bastille and doing all that, you know, with, with these kind of intentions to being the, the central figure of the reign of terror? It wasn't him single-handedly leading people to the guillotine, but at the same time, you know, it was, it was him, which is why one reason I sort of 
introduced that relationship between him and the, and the book between him and this kind of shadowy figure that's trying to alter things is because, yeah, I mean, I think he was a, you know, he, he's a person that wanted to achieve a particular thing and ended up making more and more <laughs> compromises in order to achieve that thing for reasons that I kind of wanted to get inside the head of and, and see how that could happen. <laughs> Not only, you know, sending innocent people to the guillotine, but sending people he loved to the, the guillotine and then eventually meeting that end himself. He, he is kind of a tragic figure in a way. Yes, the, the French Republic of magicians, you know, yes. which is fantastic, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, and, and again, I mean, reading that there were going to be elections, so despite your class occupation or magic, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. would, you would have a vote. Mm. Uh, so, yes, it's one of those things about good intentions and, and, in, and in theory and the unintended consequences, which, yes. of course, for the French Revolution were yeah. extreme. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, these are all characters from history. The other core character you have and, and the one that you start the story with, mm. and it really, it's, it's uh, terrifying, actually, that even the first couple of pages, is Fina. Yeah. So what can you tell us about her? Is, is she based on any particular, I know there's something fantastical about it, but is, is oh. there anyone that you have based her on or experiences that you based her on, or is it more wide reading about this, the slave trade? I kind of wanted to look at um, the way that when you start to introduce magic, you can start to get players who weren't players in our history kind of start to come to the fore, you know? Gives you, but I guess, a degree of freedom, Hannah, Absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah, you've, yeah. When you've had, not constraints, but you've had certain things that you've needed to follow yeah. with the real-life characters, you, I guess you had to have at least one yeah. who, who could be yours. Yes, yeah. oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. And also somebody who I wanted to, you know, increasingly start to rise to the forefront. Yeah, say, there was a particular slavery memoir and that was from a, a woman who made it over to England and was freed. And there were a whole lot of freed slaves and so, um, who were living in England at the time who were very involved in the abolition movement. Equiano's the famous one in terms of the memoirs getting published and his, you know, was obviously fed into hers quite a lot as well. But, um, yeah, just um, there, there was a, a real, um, yeah, it was, it was a real movement towards... Um, letting the, the, you know, the enslaved, the people who had been previously enslaved, you start to tell their own stories and get their own voices across. So a lot of that was what, um, what fed into her, and a lot of it was just um, a lot of basic research about, the, you know, about the slave trade and, you know, so forth, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've felt an extra degree of, of horror. I mean, when you think about that era, she's taken as a child, which, which happened, but the extra element that you've added in, in within this magical realm is that she is spellbound. Mm. And, uh, I mean, that just chilled me. I think given that it's in the first three or four pages, we can probably talk about it. Of course. But, but how, how, you, how you wove <laughs> this into the story of an, of an extra layer of horror mm. for these slaves ripped from, ripped from their homes. I put it in the, in the first few pages, partly so that if it was getting too dark, people would know not to read any further because my first book was a lot lighter than all this stuff um, and I'm like yeah stay there but um but yeah um it's okay but it definitely wasn't a question of trying to make slavery worse I don't think you can make slavery any worse um with looking at sort of magical control versus what really happened was that they were routinely tortured and you know beaten um you can avoid kind of getting too deep into the the gory details because you don't want to sensationalize when you're writing about slavery you want to make sure so I think among other things the the spellbinding was 
was partly just to kind of cast that light on the idea that that is literally what what slavery is trying to do. I mean, we don't have magic, but the idea of, of taking someone and trying to strip them of as much bodily autonomy as possible and, and telling yourself, which they do in the book, that when you're doing it, they don't have minds either, and so therefore they are, you know, that's, you know, that, dehum- that attempt to, to dehumanise is exactly what um, the purpose of, of slavery is, or at least the, um, the means of, of slavery is. So... Um, you know, if you're horrified by the idea of that happening by magic, then you should, by rights, be horrified by the the intention of slavery at all. Which, of course, you know. Well, I mean, the sad thing is, I mean, she's only young, and and there, but there have been rumours around, and she heard that well, if you eat this food, then it'll take the pain away, or, or you'll die. Essentially, you'll die. And yeah. she wanted to die. You know, she's shackled in a boat, and it's horrendous yeah. situation. So, I mean, I can completely understand that she hoped that this would be her escape, but it's not. I mean, this is where it's really yeah. horrendous to me. It's not. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How, how does the spellbinding work? The intention of it is that um, they, you know, if you enslave a person, then you um, give them a, you know, put them under a spell so that they can't, um, they can't move unless they are given a command <laughs> to obey. And the argument of the um, of of the slave owners in Parliament is essentially that when you do this, they don't have any you know they don't have any feelings and they're no longer human and they don't need to be respected. But you they're know. automatons. Uh, they're exactly, yeah. they're automatons, and that obviously was coming from. I mean, you know that that were those with the, without the magic, those were real arguments. What really got to me was the fact that so much of those parliamentary arguments were just taken up with trying to persuade, you know, people that, you know, Africans were in fact human, that they were not in fact enjoying their lives, you know, like, and that's a tactic. I mean, the more you try to get your opponents to waste their time having to prove the most fundamental things, you know, points of humanity, the, the more time you buy, you know. So it's not necessarily that they believe it, it's the fact that they can give people a way of saying, you know, way of looking the other way or a way of opting out of that, and you're forcing you know, your opponents to, to waste a lot of time arguing with you. I thought you were clever too, and that there is a, a physical manifestation or, or a kind of a guarantee for a slave owner that yeah. the slave would have a green fleck in the eye, because I thought, oh, you could, you could if you had some kind of ability to, to um, ward it off, yeah. and, until you had your moment to escape. But the green yeah. fleck is actually really Im- important, isn't it? I, I felt that was really smart. For plot reasons, yeah, definitely. Very definitely, helpful, yeah. but, but still really interesting. To, and to and interesting, that. yeah, and I say, and it's another one of those things where you, it's a, you know, it's a marker of difference, I guess. Very, um, I mean, she, she's a heartbreaker, this one, when she's talking about maybe being able to escape. Mm-hmm. And she says, look, I don't, I don't remember being free. I, I, I don't know that I know how to be free. Mm. That, was it. That, that kind of kicked me in the guts, but that would be the case for those who did find freedom. It was not easy. Even now, when you read prison accounts and so forth, institutionalisation is a definite um, thing. Um, Equiano is probably the most famous um, slavery memoir, and it starts pretty much exactly like, um, like, like Fina in, in the book, with him being captured and, and taken at a very young age. So, yeah, it was a thing that happened to, you know, very small children. But to fear freedom is, is and yes, tragic. Yeah, exactly, yes, exactly. And, yeah, and it's like if you, if you are brought up in that kind of situation, obviously, you know, obviously you want, you want to be free, but at the same time when you leave, if you achieve it, where's the, there isn't, you know, where's the place for you and how do you do it, yeah. So this would be a great time for a reading.
Can I? Yeah, please. <laughs> and we've set the scene very nicely. We've got the main characters out there. We've got the premise. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Ah, oh, we haven't talked quite as much about the French Revolution, but I thought I'd storm the Bastille. On the morning Thomas Clarkson arrived in Paris, um, Robsia was having breakfast at the Café de Foy in the Palais Royal Gardens with Camille Desmoulins. The café, elegant in its shroud of tree-lined walks, had become an unlikely hive of revolutionary activity. On a fine day, it was crowded with diners and walkers, and the air felt rarefied and crisp with ideas. A few pedestrians pointed and whispered as they passed Robespierre's table. They might have been pointing to Camille, who had gained a reputation for pamphlets too radical to print, but Robespierre heard his own name mentioned more than once. It had become one of the more renowned of the Third Estate. He had come from nowhere, small, pale and unassuming, yet he had come fighting, and he called for reform on a scale that was dangerous and thrilling. His quiet voice spoke of a country built on Enlightenment principles, whose people were virtuous, where magic was a free resource to be used for the betterment of all, where food was well distributed and plentiful, where courts were in the hand of the people and not the talons of the aristocracy. People laughed at his opinions as being overly idealistic, even naive. Yet when he spoke, people listened. This was partly due to the illegal magic throbbing in his chest and permeating his words. He knew this, and he had no scruples about it. What he was saying needed to be heard, by whatever means. His vision for France was so clear now he could almost touch it. It was work that had brought him from Paris to Versailles, but his meeting with Camille was more social than business. Until the meeting of the Estates Générale, Robespierre hadn't seen Camille since they had both been students. His school friend was little changed, dark-eyed and fragile, boyish and quick-witted. He had grown his black curls long and loose, as was becoming the fashion among the young radicals. As he spoke, he would push them back from his face in a manner that suggested he was not quite used to having them there. Robespierre, with his perfectly powdered wig and neat black uniform of the Estate Générale, felt ruefully like an accountant dining with a poet. The National Assembly of Magicians, Camille was saying from the other side of the table. It's all everyone can talk about, you know. It's only a name as yet, Robespierre said, in his usual role as cautious, indulgent elder student. He couldn't really muster much conviction. On this day, when the sky was high overhead and he sat in the midst of revolutionary fervour, he couldn't help but believe that anything was possible. The king won't acknowledge us as a new form of government. The king doesn't have to, nor do the aristocrats. Robespierre had become more familiar with his friend's scrawled handwriting over the years than his voice. He had forgotten how pronounced his stammer could be, or it had become more so. When he was excited, his thoughts leaped too fast for his tongue to catch up. He was excited now. They only have to fail to stop us, and they will, as they fail to keep you out of the Estates Générale. Robespierre struggled to hold back a smile at that. We had numbers on our side that day, he said. They couldn't stop us. We'll always have numbers on our side. That's what the other commoner magicians need to understand. They can't take us all. There are only a few thousand Templars of note in Paris. The number of commoner magicians, braceleted or rogue, is in the tens of thousands, perhaps the hundred thousands. The aristocracy know this. That's why they're so invested in the myth that commoner magicians are rare. That's why they keep us ashamed of the bracelets, so that the true numbers are never revealed. One act of illegal magic, the bracelet sings, and the Templars are on them like dogs on a fox. But tens of thousands of bracelets, singing out at once, they could never stop that. He broke off with a sharp intake of breath. His knife fell to the side of his plate as his right fist clenched tightly. Robespierre winced. Camille, it's all right. Camille shook out his hand impatiently, as one did to ease a bee sting, and picked up his knife again. His bracelet peeked from behind his cuff, glowing molten gold. Magic was coursing strongly in his veins. 
it always had when conversations became too heated. The burning metal must have been excruciating, yet beyond a flush of colour to his cheeks and a brightness to his eyes, he didn't show it. I know how you feel, I do, but please try to calm down. This is no time for calm, this is the time for action. We are acting. You should have been there that day when the king closed the doors. The tide is rising, the waters are churning, but it's hard to know when it will overflow. Camille laughed. That's your problem, Maxime. It's not a tide waiting to rise. It's a powder keg, and it's waiting for a spark. Robespierre always thought it was strange afterwards that it should have been at that moment that the news came. But perhaps it wasn't. The revolution was all anyone really talked about these days. If it hadn't been that moment, it would have been another equally fitting. Camille. The voice belonged to a man about their own age, plump and well-dressed. He pushed his way through the tables, receiving annoyed looks from diners as their wine sloshed. Have you heard? Robespierre didn't recognise the man, but clearly Camille did. He knew all sorts of people, most of them less than reputable. What? What's happened? The king has given the Templars discretionary power to arrest and hold any commoner suspected of illegal use of magic, without trial, the man said. The official decree came down only minutes ago. The assembly asked for leniency for illegal magic. They don't care what the assembly wants, the man said. He was pink with indignation. The king won't listen to us. It's a message to that effect. It's more than that, Robespierre started to say, but the man had already moved to the next table. He was brimming over with his own news and had no room for more. What more is it? Kimmy asked. Robespierre turned to him instead. Without a trial, they don't have to prove use of magic at all. They can arrest anyone for any reason, Kimmy finished. His eyes had widened. Dear God, it's because of the riots. Robespierre heard himself sounding very calm. Inside, he was burning. They would suffer for this. He would see to it. They want to be able to use illegal magic charges to dispose of the worst of the dissenters. It's as if every Templar in the order has been given a lettre de cachet, a countless number of them. They're afraid. They should be afraid. Camille looked more furious than Robespierre had ever seen him, even when they were children. They don't realise yet just how afraid they should be. Before Robespierre could react, Camille leapt on the table. His shoe narrowly missed Robespierre's plate and the cutlery rattled. Not that it mattered. Breakfast was over. Neither of them had touched a bite. My friends, he called to the cafe and to the streets. Get down from there, Robespierre whispered, but without real conviction. A thrill raised the hairs on the back of his neck. Camille, of course, ignored him. The National Assembly of Magicians has asked for the Bastille to be dismantled. Word has just come that the King has awarded the Knights Templar powers to arrest and hold any commoner magician without trial, as they see fit. Could our wishes be more insolently flouted? Could they show any more clearly their desire to see us dead before they see us free? It took Robespierre a moment to realise why his friend's voice sounded unfamiliar. For the first time in all the years he had known him, his stammer was gone. He had, somehow, outpaced it or been carried above it. Without it, his voice was as clear as the ringing of a bell. And what do you propose we do, someone called from a table. Camille's head turned toward him. March on the Bastille. It's only stone and magic after all. Tear it down before they have a chance to use it against us ever again. Free those who have languished inside it for too long. Most in the cafe were turning to look at him. A few from the path outside were stopping in their tracks. It wasn't enough. Only Camille Desmoulins on a table, saying things they had heard before. Some were even beginning to look away. Robespierre saw Camille took a deep breath and square his shoulders. Then he let his magic loose. Robespierre had often seen Camille scorched by the magic in his blood, but he had never seen the magic itself. He knew his friend could call shadows. That had been the incident that had nearly seen him in the Bastille as a child. 
He hadn't realised that Camille was a fire mage as well, and he hadn't realised that he was quite so powerful. The shadows around him swirled, gathered, not quite manifesting, but casting the Palais Royale into shades of soft grey. Sparks crackled from his fingertips, bouncing from the tables in glints of red and gold. The bracelet at his wrist glowed and then chimed, the endless, ear-piercing scream designed to bring Templars running. The braceleted magician was meant to be immobilised with pain by that point. Camille stood straight and tall. Commoner magic in broad daylight on the streets of Paris. Robespierre unexpectedly felt tears spring to his eyes. They blurred Camille's face and transformed the tendrils of flame about him as flickers of light. My God, he thought, it's beautiful. This is our birthright, Camille said. Everyone was looking at him now. The patrons of the cafe, for the first time in Robespierre's memory, had fallen into utter silence. The only sound was the high, shrill wail of Camille's bracelet. This was what was given to us by blood. If they want to take it from us, then I say we give them blood in return. Quietly, without giving himself away, Robespierre let his own mesmerism flow, intertwining it with Camille's words and sending it through the crowds. It burned in him as usual, hot and fierce, but this time he sensed it was not needed. Some other darker influence was already at work. For a moment, he could feel it like a touch on his shoulder. If you're wearing a bracelet, Camille said, let it scream. Robespierre never quite believed it was going to happen until other bracelets started to chime in conjunction with Camille's. The shrieking notes were eerie. They mingled with the voices of the crowd and the stamping of feet. They were the sound of stifled torment finally being heard. But it was more than that. The sound was only a reaction to what was really taking place. Scores of commoners, all releasing magic that most had never used in their lives. Fire mages, weather mages, mesmers, metalmancers. The air hummed and throbbed with power. Fire, wind and storm clouds raged under the bright July skies. In that moment, Robespierre wished more than anything that he'd been caught in bracelets as an infant. Not for his necromancy, for which they would have killed him, but for his then latent mesmerism. He would not have been able to use it in secret then. He would have had little chance of saving France. But he longed to be part of that crowd. Camille stood above them, the lights from his magic dancing on his face. Come, let's go free our people. They moved through the streets in a giant wave, and as they did so, more rose and followed. Oh, gets me every time. <laughs> it's just a, such a beautiful image, isn't it, of the of the of the bracelet shining. I mean, they're, they're um, marks to 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 curb people's ability, but to, yeah. it's, it's like a song can be like that, or a march, or you mm. know, just that that when they've had enough and despite the pain and, and the danger, that people yeah. rise up. You know? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes places that can be good or bad, but the actual moment of saying, you know, no, I've had enough, we're not taking this anymore, and that kind of, you know, surge of something is quite wonderful, yeah. You mentioned the fire mage. Now, the royal family was very interesting, so I see that in France, uh, the <laughs> within breeding, it sounds like they've lost the magic. So Marie Antoinette was important because <laughs> she brought a, a, a magic with her into the into the gene pool. Yes. In your imagination. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's a fire mage in this. Um, it, it's that thing, you know, that the, the thing in history where, um, you know, there's kind of a myth that, you know, the aristocracy are special because they have a particular blood and the commoners are unspecial because they do not. And so, you know, that's kind of what's starting to, to happen in this book is that the myth is that, oh, aristocracy are more like, are naturally magical and the commoners are are not, you know, whereas in reality, of course, it's an equal, <laughs> equal distribution, really. Um, it's just that the aristocracies are getting boosted and the commoners are being suppressed. So, yeah, exactly. The royal family are kind of struggling to, to maintain, you know, to keep the bloodlines going and make sure that they, 
you know, maintain their magic, yeah. Well, the madness of King George has a whole different Certainly. spin on yeah. this yes. over in the UK as well <laughs> yes. with you. That was fun, yeah, definitely. The, um, the, the bracelets, let's have a look at those, how they, because uh, there it's like, Camille had one as a, as a child. So how did the bracelets, how did the bracelets work? In the book, um, yes. I don't know why I keep saying in the book like I'm like possibly <laughs> be a historical counterpart to this. <laughs> of course it's in the book. Um, I made it up. Well, you've got yeah. two worlds, so it is I know, quite it, it, it is hand, hard. You know? It's like when you say, what do you think of William Pitt? It's like, well, is it, you know, the real one or is it the one where, you know, um, <laughs> he's, a, yeah, he's a secret vampire and everything. So, um, yeah, spoiler, but not really. It's quite early on. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm fine with people knowing that. Um, but yeah, so yeah, no. So the the bracelets work in the sense. Um, so the even though of course you know England's broken with the Catholic Church as per normal history, the Knights Templar are still a, the force in across Europe um, that monitor and control magic. So they've been allowed to you know that alliance has held, and um, because they were the ones that originally um, clamped down on magic hundreds of years ago. Um, and what they do is obviously when com you know when commoners are born you know the, the, the in Britain and in France they're divided into commoners and aristocracy depending on whether or not you're titled. Um, when commoners are born, they're tested for um, for ma for magic. Um, if they are um, you know found to have you know magical abilities that were as infants, then um, they're given a bracelet that um, grows with them their whole life. And when the magic starts to, you know, when they, they sort of start to use their magic, it starts to heat up um, to varying, you know, and that's used in varying ways, but, um, and if they actually go the whole way and start using uh, their their powers, um, then it sets off an alarm, essentially. It starts screaming. Um, people, you know, get, are able to capture them, and the Templars are able to come and, and take them away. The, the storming of the Bastille, it's like, um, you know, they're there's a limit to, again, it's like that's that's all the physical limitations on them using magic, and that's when people start to think, well, there's no reason why we can't push past these, or there's no reason why we can't, you know, work around them. It's also partly a, a cultural barrier that they're being made to feel ashamed of their magic, and once you get rid of that, then the physical restraints don't, you know, don't matter so much, yeah. Terrifying. Now, I, I promise you questions. We have a roving microphone. Any questions here? To what extent do you hope to bring, for example, readers of history into science fiction fantasy, or how much do you want to get fantasy readers interested in history? Mm. Is that part of what you're trying to do, or is it just because it's your interests? I'm thinking I'm, I just, when I start writing, I naturally start writing fantasy, but my reading tastes are not entire, I mean, I love reading fantasy too, but my, my reading tastes are honestly more kind of, um, you know, historical, <laughs> classic lit a lot of the time. Um, and so, yeah, so I just think I just tend to, you know, that tends to happen because I'm writing both the things that I love in one kind of weird um, <laughs> mess, yeah. yeah. Fantastically structured novel is the words <laughs> you're looking for. <laughs> any, other, any other questions? I, I have more, but uh, over here, we have one here, and then at, then at the back. I am a firm believer in what goes around comes around, and I look forward to the day, for example, to see what happens to Donald Trump in the long term. Do you envision historically writing him into your books <laughs> as a sort of dark, oh. stupid lord? <laughs> God, I don't know if I want to... Does he figure in there somewhere? <laughs> if I took it, yeah, I, d I don't know what a magical history of 2020 would look like. Yeah, he would definitely be a, be a dark lord. I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not... 
yeah, say, I don't know if I want to touch him, frankly. I don't, um, Magical History of 2020 would be very, he would be a very dark um, wizard in that, yeah. I have a question about your process. Um, So your novels really bubble with ideas and characters and concepts. You're juggling a lot. Mm -hmm. Do you just keep all that inside or do you have someone that you're able to talk to or a group of people that you're able to talk to? Do you trust? Do you have a trusted reader? (laughs) I I have a trusted reader. Uh, I mean, my sister's my trusted reader. Uh, She's... um, I say we we share a house together out you know out of out of Maori Beach, which I think it says in my bio. Um, us and the animals, um, yeah, the mini menagerie. Yeah, so um, yeah, I say she's she's usually the one who gets to read whatever I uh, you know I send. So and she's the one that has to suffer when I'm like I can't work out what's happening in chapter seven. You know, I'm just going to bounce ideas off you for you know <laughs> for a thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean I've yeah say I. I've got a, a Discord group of writers um, as well. I don't. That tends to be more industry stuff. I don't really bounce ideas off them as much. So yeah, she, she's probably the one that I yeah gets to suffer with all my early drafts. Yeah, <laughs> and my agent, of course. Eventually, eventually, my agent gets to see it, and she's very, very good and very collaborative. So yeah. Thank you for reading, Hannah. Um, I've got a question for you as. Um writer of history fiction, there seems to be two approaches. One is to be as historically accurate as possible, including all the words, so you don't use modern words. You're trying to step into the vocabulary of people who live there. Uh, Are you trying to um, go back in time linguistically, or are you trying to sort of be more in the flow of the modern view? Yes, yeah, no, no, it's a really good question. Um, it's a bit of a balance of the two in the sense, I mean, and with this, with these books particularly, because um, I, as I say, partly what I really love about this time period is all the rhetoric and the speech making. And most of that stuff, I think, got transplanted fairly, um, fairly straightforwardly, I think, you know, and rewritten in that particular style. When I was going to the personal conversations, I didn't go quite to modern, but I just let it lapse a little bit and let sort of contractions creep in. And like, I was uh, careful there was nothing ter- like jarringly anachronistic, but just just to kind of let it relax a little bit into something that feels more familiar to us, just so that you're not distancing <laughs> too much at that point. So yeah, it was a kind of juggling act. And I think I think in France. Particularly, I sort of was thinking, um, and, and Haiti actually for that matter, I was thinking, well, you're translating anyway that they're not speaking English. Um, so there's a degree of flexibility you can get um, with, with how they're speaking. So yeah, hopefully we kind of found a balance that worked, but it was definitely something that we were, you know, thinking about all the way through. Just, just before we wrap this up, just got a couple of minutes, Hannah. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the, the, the first in is it a trilogy? Uh, duology. So a duology. Two, oh, so yeah, yeah. You say that now. But <laughs> <laughs> Game of the Thrones was only supposed to be two books. So, oh, uh, God. Robert yeah. Jordan. Um, if I get to 2020, I'll let you all know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so where do you take us in the, in the next one? Uh, so the next one, this one is more or less, you know, well, I mean, it, it, it ends with kind of the end of that French revolutionary period. Um, the second one kind of is the Napoleonic, you know, the rise of Napoleon and the Napoleonic um, Wars. Is he a dark lord? Is he a dark lord? (laughs) No, but he is talking to one. (laughs) 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 Yes, um, there's a kraken and a dragon, so we get, you know, (laughs) it's it's good. Yeah, um, 
That was fun, yeah. No, I think with the second one, it does, yeah, it, it sort of covers about the same time period, I think, as the length of time as this one. Um, and it's, yeah, say, it's getting into the, the Napoleonic Wars, and it's slightly, it's a little more, I mean, I, it's still following history more or less, but it starts, um, things start, because, um, you know, magic has started to come in more and more for the words who've read the end of the book, um, things start to diverge from history a little bit. People start, laws start to change. Obviously, we didn't have um, people start to come to the forefront who didn't come to the forefront in, in history. So it's, it's, a, it's veering more into the kind of fantasy alternate history, whereas this was trying to stick a little more to, to what it is. And Fina's back. And Fina as well. And Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, look, thank yeah. you very much. Please join me in thanking Hannah Perry for sharing so much with us this morning. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you.